Okay, everybody, part two. You didn't expect the two-parter. We're full of surprises over here at BNB, and uh, we didn't even touch the meat of what we came here for on that first part of the podcast. So we're here uh, doing part two, obviously. Now, the reason you're here, Luke, is because uh, <laughs> the full reason, the only reason why I invited you on was so you could talk about <coughs> what you do, like in depth. And we didn't get All to right. it. I'm sorry about that. So, yeah. you know, let's 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 get right to it. What is it specifically? We know you're a financial planner, but what really do you do for your clients? If I summed it up in one word, I would say education. Yes. Say provide education, two words. Provide education. Okay. Because um, let me tell you this. I went to school for finance, and people always say to me, because I'm in financial planning, they're like, well, you went to school for this, you get it. And I will tell you that I didn't learn anything in at the University of Missouri uh, on how to invest or anything about financial planning. There are courses, I'm pretty sure, but um, you have to like move heaven and earth to find them. They don't, they don't like you to take the courses. I think they're cheaper. Um, they want you to go into the business school. Um, in theory, it looks better, but I don't know. I would rather have the um, actual relative knowledge for my career path than have something that was better for everything on my resume, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I would say when we provide education, listen to people and provide education because that's there is providing education. If you if people know nothing, then that's the way we go. And sometimes people have very specific needs. So the other side of that is just figuring out what people's goals are and building plans to help them achieve their goals. Okay. Right? And, uh, but I'm going to go with the provide education side of it today because it's more interesting because it applies to everybody. Okay. For the most part. And, uh, you know, unless we have a specific example then the other side is obviously subjective to each person. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. So I was going to say, one thing I want to tell you is that you've heard this phrase, well, the stock market averages 10% or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. People always say the market, in the long run, the stock market will average uh, 10%. But what they're talking about when they're saying that average is they're talking about um, they could be one of two things, but most of the time they're talking about the arithmetic mean. So what that is, is adding up all the percentages and dividing it by the number of years in the time span. Okay. So you have 50% and negative 50%. What's the average? Uh, zero. Yes. Okay. So if you have a hundred dollars and you make 50%, how much money do you have? Um, 150. Mm -hmm. And then you lose 50%. How much money do you have? 100. Or you have 50 from 100, but you have 150. Or you have 100 from 150. Are you sure? No, I'm not because I just realized I'm wrong. If you, if you lost 50% from 150, you'd have, you'd, you'd be at 75. Right. So think about that for a second. Uh -huh. What was the first answer you gave me? Uh, not to that question, to the first question. The first you said, question. what's the average? And you said... Uh, you said 50... Oh, yeah, zero. Yeah, right. yeah. So what's the average, but how much money do you have? Yeah, you, well, you lost 25 all day. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you see the problem. Yeah. So that's the arithmetic average. You're taking the percentages and dividing it by the number of years. Okay. It's wrong. Flatly speaking, it's misleading at best and a lie. Uh, at worst. Mm -hmm. So if someone's saying we average this return, you you know that's not an accurate number. If there's one negative number in the bunch, if they're all positive, it's accurate. If there's one negative number, it's wrong. If you have $100 and you lose 50% and then you gain 50%, you're at 75, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So let me give you a real world example. If you take the S&P 500, so the top 500 stocks in the country, it's an index that people measure the stock market success by. It's the thing that you see on TV when people say the stock market's up. That's usually what they're talking about. Um, if you take the average return from 2000 through 2020, it's 8.19%. 
Okay. If you take the real return, meaning if you invested a hundred dollars in 2000 and you pick a rate that would be the same every year to get you to the same spot that it is in actually right now, that number is 6.59%. Mm, I'm getting in the weeds a little bit here. So if you take the percentages and divide them by the number of years, mm -hmm. like 50 plus 50 divided by two, mm -hmm. you get 8.19 in that example. From 2000 to 2020, real world stock market returns, the average return is 8.19. Gotcha. And the real return, meaning what I would have gotten if I would have invested $100 and left it there until today, mm -hmm. is 6.59. Okay. So almost 2% difference. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Of, it's a big difference. So the average return is, is, is always off in that regard. Gotcha. And that one's a big difference, right? That's a percent and a half. Absolutely. So if you're using the average to plan for retirement, but you're off by a percent and a half, you're done. Yeah. That's, you do that's that for, you do that wrong for 30 years, then you are going to work a lot longer than you had originally anticipated. Yeah. And 30 years being, that's the number you're using as an average retirement. No, I mean, if you save for 30 years, gotcha. you assume this average return in your plans. Gotcha. But the real return is a percent and a half, 2% lower. You're going to end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars less money. Holy crap. Okay, and, and you, this is happening to a lot of people, you think, all the time. I know it is because no one that I ever meet with. I, let me give you an example. I had a client, I, all the time I ask people, what is the most valuable thing that you got out of this meeting? And a lot of people say that. Simple example, add 50%, subtract 50%. I had a guy who worked at a bank who now works at a wealth management firm, who's one of my clients, who frequently says to me, no one at my firm knows about this stuff. This is a good feeling, actually. <laughs> and a secret. And... Um, he, I, the first time I met with him, that's what he said. And we're talking about a guy that literally does more, potentially more financial analysis than I do. And I'm talking about something that is, I would say, fairly simple, but unknown, right? That the average return of something is completely different than the actual return by a lot of times multiple percentage points. So the difference between eight, like in a real world example, the difference between the stock market's average return from 2000 to 2020 and the stock market's actual return from 2000 to 2020 is a percent and a half. Yeah. So imagine making a percent and a half less every single year than what you were promised for 20, 21 years. That's a big miss. It's a big miss, but it's, it has a lot of ramifications. If you do it for 30, 40 years, you're yeah. down hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're saving a lot of money. That's crazy that people in the wealth management industry don't know something. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. And so, I mean, you're kind of, what are you, what are you in? What is your industry? It's wealth management, financial planning. Wealth management is like more specific. Okay. Um, wealth management, if, if you're only in wealth management, wealth management, I would say, is like a component of my business. Okay. So financial planning is like, what are we going to do for this life event? How do we plan for this life event? Wealth management is more like, how do we get the best return year to year? Okay. Um, sometimes. Or wealth management can be financial planning. They're pretty much the same thing. Okay. For all intents and purposes. Gotcha. Um, I would say real, true wealth management, at least, should true. be like that. I mean, if you're just focusing on average returns and... Um, you're ignoring what the money was going to be used for, then that, you, I don't know, that's not a very smart wealth manager, I would say. Okay. But most are good. They don't, they know. People know. They're not dumb. People in my business, they're, they're trained well. They know what they're doing. Gotcha. For the most part. Nice. Some of them. And you have to take, do you have to take a lot of tests to be yeah. one of these? I mean, just basic, you need, yeah, I'm not going to go into it, but you need three tests. Yeah. Three tests. Gotcha. Yeah. You see, uh, they difficult? It depends who you ask. Uh, depends how good you are at taking tests. Okay. I think they have a pretty good pass rate, 70% maybe. Okay. And do you deal with... Take them as many times as you want. Oh, that's great. 
That's awesome. Like an SAT. Yeah. Keep studying. Keep keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> cool. Do you uh, deal with like you're an all-encompassing financial planner, but do you do deal with anything like other than uh, a U.S. dollar? Do you, can you do euros? Well, we do international stock. Yeah. Can you like? Can, do you have to be a certain type of trained in that? Or we do international stock funds usually to what cut down on the like difficulty of it. Okay. Oh, I, I don't know where I. I it's basically you're investing in international markets, but it's in U.S. dollar. Gotcha. Okay. So you don't try. You don't move around euros. Currency stuff. Not yeah. really. No. Okay. Interesting. Not cool. really. And most people don't want to. Really. Like from like changing a U.S. dollar to a euro. Yeah, you have currency currency rate risk. Um, you got all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want it. I mean, when you get into trading and things like that, that people some people do, uh, that might come up. But most people they want to plan for retirement. They want to plan for their kids' education. They want to save for a down payment on a house. They want to be rich. They yeah. want to stop working one day. Yeah. I'm right there with that. You know. Yeah. You don't do... So you don't put money into stocks for other people as well? Or can you... No, that is what... That's exactly what... Gotcha. Okay, that's the uh, international stock fund you're talking about. Yeah. With other stuff. So you look at... You're looking at the market too. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you think about this? I don't... You know, it's completely speculative, I understand. But what do you think about the real estate market in its state today? Well, I wouldn't say it's a bubble because bubbles are usually caused by an influx of supply. So, for example, a bubble might be caused in a currency like the dollar by printing too much money. That might cause a bubble. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It pops, you lose money. Mm-hmm. The value goes down. So that's an oversupply that causes inflation a lot of times. Okay. In, re- in this real estate market, there's, not a, there's an undersupply. The reason housing prices are high is because um, you can't buy a house. The demand is there. People want to buy houses. What do you say? Oh, yeah. They want to buy houses. That's why the prices are going up. There's cooling down a little bit now, but um, that's why the price, not because of like 2008 when there was an oversupply of loans being made. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That causes housing prices to go up too, but that's the bubble because there's an oversupply of mortgages. Gotcha. Um, but this is more of like, is, we just got this is just straight up economics. Yeah. Um, supply and demand. You increase the demand, but the supply is the same. You're going to uh-huh. have increases in price. For sure. For sure. So that's what's going on right now. And also you have, it's very cheap to buy a house uh, from a lending standpoint, from a borrowing standpoint. It's not cheap from a price standpoint, but let me give you an example. I have a friend, one of my clients and good friends of mine, he bought a house on the East Coast in South Carolina for about... Well, he's on the East Coast. I don't remember what state he's in. But he bought a house for about $300,000. And I think his mortgage payment is under $2,000. Okay. And his rate is under 3%. I think it's around 2%. So if that rate is low, then your payment's lower, right? Um, And so it's cheaper to buy a house, relatively speaking, in the sense that your mortgage payment is lower. Yeah. So if your interest rate is lower, your mortgage payment is lower, so it's cheaper to buy a house in that way. At the same time, the prices are really high. Gotcha. So people are wanting to buy because you can you can live in a house now for a lower mortgage payment than you have really yeah. any other time in history. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. That also has something to do with the... the uh, so everyone wants to buy. No one is really selling too much. Because the prices are going up, I don't know why people aren't selling exactly. I don't. Yeah. It's not really my area of expertise, but I know why. Yeah, that's why the price is going up. Because and it's not. I don't think it's a bubble. I mean, that's not really what a bubble is. A bubble is an influx of supply, too much supply. Yeah. This is okay. this is not that. Okay. So I was just reading yesterday. Uh, but me might have a crash. I don't know. It's possible. I have no idea, but it, right. I doubt it. Well, I'm not sure anybody's going to hold you to. You know, your real estate expertise. Purely opinion, everybody. Purely opinion uh, based off of our little understanding of economics. You, you have much more understanding of economics than I do. But, you know, if somebody comes at you with a pitchfork, I'll be the first one to defend you. Cause, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I need you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they're coming eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Um, so I was reading something yesterday about 
they're demo- a lot of uh, housing units uh, are going to de- demolition because it is cheaper for landlords to demolish versus refurbish, right? And so that's le- uh, this article is basically stating that it's destroying the low income housing uh, uh, availability for those in the inner city that need, you know, the place to get to the, on the bus route. Um, and just, you know, it's low income housing. It's not a huge, like uh, a two light, you know. Just, so you know, you're saying that the rent will now be more expensive because they they bulldozed it and rebuilt it and so. No, no, the, the, what's happening is they're demolishing the unit, the, and, the building entirely. And building a different kind of housing. They're not even building. Oh. They're not building. Yeah, that's the that's the. Why issue. are they demolishing it? Because it's cheaper to just get rid of it. Yeah, it's cheaper to get rid of it yeah. than it is to actually build it back up. Yeah, and so it's getting rid of a lot of low income housing uh, opportunities uh, availability. So I I feel like I don't know why I brought that up to be honest with you, but it was real estate and I read about it yesterday, so I wanted to to bring mm-hmm. it up because I would like to get I would like to talk to her as well. There's a woman. Who's like spearheading the 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 studies on why exactly uh, it's happening? Why people are getting basically pushed out of low you know units? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, oftentimes uh, low income uh, ten, uh, low income renting tenants are getting pushed out, and uh, it's just interesting. I hadn't heard of anything like that until I read this article. I love, I'm starting to really love uh, KCUR. We got a whole bunch of stuff like going on, like in Kansas City, whole bunch of articles that about topics I've never heard of. You know what I mean? I've never even thought to think about. It's just allowing me to think a little bit more about this stuff. But I'm kind of ranting now. But let's get back to your uh, your work, man. So uh, you. So anybody can get in contact with you. What is like your? Can I put my phone number. Of there or absolutely, in, I definitely should do that for the people, for the people, baby. So last time I at the end of the part one episode, mm-hmm. I said something along the lines of typically you can take out four or five percent of your retirement plan every year and be pretty sure you won't run out of money. And we help people get to ten percent. Mm-hmm. So that means instead of taking out only four or five percent, you're you are able to take out ten percent of your 401k or Roth IRA or wherever you're putting money in your retirement plan safely. Mm-hmm. So obviously people probably like, what, how, what, how does that happen? And the answer is because the reason you can only take out four or 5% is something called sequence of returns risk. I think maybe I brought it up last time. I don't remember, but sequence of returns risk is this. You don't know, it's true that the stock market's long-term return is 10%. Not average, real, real return, 10%. However, there are periods of time when there are abysmal returns, okay? And there are periods of time of great returns. Now, what's more important to you? The long-term return or what the market does when you retire? Uh, the uh, what it does when I retire, for sure. Exactly. So it doesn't really matter that over the long, over the thirty year retirement you have, it might be ten percent. If it's terrible the first ten years, you're still going to run out of money. Yeah. So let me give you an example. So from two thousand ten to two thousand nineteen, what do you think the actual return of the S and P five hundred was? Oh man. 2000, 2010, or 2010, 2019. Seven. 13.5. Okay. So if you invested a dollar in 2010, you would have $3.57 today. If you invested $100 in 2010, at the end of 2000, not today, at the end of 2019, you'd have $3 or $357. Gotcha. 100 to 357. Okay. But if you invested the same $100 in 2000, and you waited 10 years to 2009, if you invested $100 in 2000, how much money do you think you'd have in 2009? Definitely less than that. 
So if you invested $100 in 2000, you would have $91 in 2009. The average return was, or the real return, let's check this out. So the average return was 1.21%. The real return, negative 1%. <laughs> Let's so this is, up. this is a really good example of average versus actual returns. One is positive and one is literally negative. Yeah. So I'm going to repeat this because this is pretty wild actually. If you invested $100 in 2000 and then you waited to 2009, you would average 1.21%. Okay. But your $100 would have gone down to $91. So, so, yeah, that average return means nothing. You it means money. nothing. It's misleading, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because the real return was negative 1%. Uh -huh. And that's because, just like if you add 50% and subtract 50%, your average is zero, but you have less money than what you started with. So, yeah. in this case, nuts. basically, here, I'll just read, let, let me just do this. I'll read the returns, okay? 2000. I'll just go in order. Negative 9, negative 11, negative 22. That right there is brutal. People don't really remember that 2000, 2002, was, that's a negative 50% drop. Negative 9, negative 12. It's actually 11.9 now. We'll call it 12. Negative 9, negative 12, negative 22. Okay. Then 28, 10, 5, 16, 5%, negative 37% in 2008. And uh, 27% in 2009. Oh, okay. So, <clears throat> but the next 10 years were great. So, this is a great way if you are in your 20s and 30s to save for retirement, the stock market. You have a long time and any 30-year period is a good growth rate. It is. It just is. But you need that much time. But once you're in your 50s, all you care about is what it's going to be like on the day you retire, right? So you have to think in advance of when, when you get that far because mm -hmm. the only way to beat the sequence of returns, risk, meaning which one of those are you going to be? Are you going to be 2000 to 2009 when the, the market returned negative 1% every year? Mm -hmm. um, annualized? Or are you going to be 2010 to 2009, or I mean 2010 to 2019, where you got 13.5% annualized? Annualized means basically what you would get every year to accumulate that much money that it actually accumulated to. Because it's not the same rate every year, we know that. But annualized means if you picked one number and got to the same place, this would be that number that it would increase by every year. Okay. So you can have negative one or you can have 13.5, but you don't know which one you're going to be. And if you land on the wrong one, you didn't do anything wrong. You might have diligently saved. But again, what's more important, what the market does in the long term or where the market is on the day you retire. Right. If you, exactly. If you, if you retire in 2000 and then you take out money every year, but you lose the first year 9%, the second year, 12%, the third year, 22%, and you're pulling money out every year. I mean, how long is your money going to last if the first 10 years of your retirement, you have no growth and you, in fact, lost money? <laughs> yeah. And you're pulling money out every year. Oh, you're screwed. If, now, what if you're assuming an average return of 10%? Because that's huh. what people told you. Yeah. yeah so you decide you can take out 6%. You're like, well, I averaged 10 throughout my portfolio. So I'll take out six. That gives me a buffer of four. You're for sure running out of money. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. You're for sure running out of money because that's not the way math works. Math is not money and money is not math. Hmm. Even though people think it is, it's not. It's not the way it works. Um, basically, if you get unlucky or you have bad advice, but in this case, if you just get unlucky, you're going to run out of money. Right, so, so what's the remedy for that? So the remedy is this: um, <clears throat> you must have something in place where you can number one, you have no risk; number two, you have a competitive return; number three, um, fully funded by the time you retire; and number four, uh, that is tax-free. 
you have to have something that meets those four qualifications to withdraw money out of um, by the time you retire. And you need to be able to withdraw money from that whenever you have negative years, the first 10 years of your retirement. Gotcha. You're hedging your bet, essentially, huh? You're more than hedging your bet because you know that at some point you're going to have a negative year. Okay. It's, okay, it's, yeah. it's very likely the first 10 years you're going to have some negative years in there, right? Yeah. You don't know if you're going to have one or five. You know, 2000 or four. I mean, 2000, 2009 had four. 2010 to 2019 had one and it was negative four. So it's minuscule. But you don't know which one you're going to be. Yeah. And if you just place your bet on being retiring at a time that's similar to 2010 to 2019 instead of 2000 to 2009, well, you're really rolling the dice. Yeah. So you... So what I'm saying is you have that, what I call a volatility shield in place. Huh. And um, you withdraw money from that. But remember, it has to be no risk, competitive returns, tax-free, and fully funded by the time you retire. Uh-huh to draw money from on the down years when your retirement account is down. Gotcha. Yeah. If you have that, you can take out 10% from your retirement. Oh, okay. So I will not reveal the volatility shield on the podcast okay. or how it works because it's very intricate for the most part. It's not that intricate, but it's kind of <laughs> intricate. Um, and it's for another, another, it's more personalized and it depends on each person and how it works for that. Okay. So they yeah, just need to give you a call and figure just, out what Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You really got some secrets on you, man. You got some monetary secrets that people need to hear. I think so. You know, the reason I stayed in this for so long was because I thought people needed to hear this information. Yeah. Every time I talk to people, they're like, why isn't everybody doing this? Everyone who understands it does do it for the most part. Mm -hmm. Some people are hard-headed and they don't get it, but most people do. Mm -hmm. I do need uh, need to let y'all know, I, I... uh, was a client of Luke's at one point. It fell through because I moved to Milwaukee and kind of haven't picked it back up yet. But I do intend to uh, come back because good. I mean, I know exactly. I, I know what you're doing. We've talked about it many times, um, and I understand it. But it's a matter of I need to get my financial ducks in a row. Right. Lately, I've really been getting very astute with my money. Like I'm understanding the game. A little bit more each day by day and I'm developing a savings account which has been so much fun to watch grow and then once I have that savings account where it needs to be which will be pretty soon so fun I'm stoked about mm-hmm. uh, then it's going to be diversifying into what mm-hmm. you do you know what mm-hmm. I mean then it's actually going to be all right I'm good to go with my savings I don't need to worry about nothing now I can start to make my money grow in other ways so uh yeah, I'm definitely. I'm. I'm gonna hit you up at some point. You'll definitely be hearing from me. Good. Uh, you got my number. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to let the people know about before? Well, there's a lot of stuff. Are you trying to wrap up? Well, it's it's. I don't know what else you would. You know, you like to p- people to understand about what you do. Uh, without you know, because you said it was a little bit more personal. That volatility show is a little bit more personal conversation. So I'll I'll be done with that. But I do have something very interesting. I was meeting with one of my uh, friends and clients the other day, and uh, he's also Ukrainian. But he moved here in two thousand when he was about forty, uh-huh. and he moved here with his uh, newborn daughter and twelve-year-old son and his wife. So he got here in something called the lottery. So they did this thing um, for other countries then. I don't know if they do it now or not, but basically you would apply for, um, they would take a certain amount of people from every country. Uh-huh. And um, his secretary, or not his secretary, something like his secretary or a receptionist he worked with or something like that, uh, did it every year. She's like, they, she's like, I've been doing it for 20 years or 10 years or whatever it was. And uh, she's like, you need to do this too. And she's like, I'll even fill out the paperwork for you. And he was like, all right, whatever, fill it out for me. And he won. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> so we moved his family to the U.S. Oh, that secretary gosh. must have been losing her mind. <laughs> I actually think it's rigged because he was a professor. Oh, and I think they just kind of picked people that are uh, they just picked people that were uh, that they wanted to come into the country. Wow! But they wanted the appearance of being fair. I have a feeling that's what they did. That sounded like something the United States would do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one year he applies after 30 years of... Yeah, I know, right? It's, it's a great story. But anyway, what I was going to say is uh, he was telling me how it is so crazy for people who grew up in the Soviet Union to even conceive of something like financial planning because everything was done. You go to work, you get cash. No bank, no stocks. No investments. It doesn't exist. No financial system. Okay. No loans. No financial system. You go. Your housing is arranged for you. You go. You work. You have money. You work for 40 years. Then the government gives you a pension, which is a little bit less than what you made. It's all a very small amount of money. It's like nothing. And uh, that's the so that was the Soviet Union. So that ended in 1990. And then he came here in 2000. In the end of 1990, 1991, Soviet Union fell apart. But what I was saying, what I wanted to say was uh, this, because you asked me last time about being Ukrainian and stuff, growing up Ukrainian, mm -hmm. half Ukrainian, half American, and I was telling him about this podcast that we did, and um, he was talk. We were talking about how when he first moved here, um, someone reached out to him. And they were like, well, you should meet with this financial advisor. And he's like, financial advisor? Like, what do I need a finance? What are you talking about? Like, I go to work, they pay me, and then I, and then that's it. And then I spend the money. I go to work, they pay me, I spend the money. What is a, what's a financial advisor for? What could they possibly do for me? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting, and he used, because the rest of it to him is just money manipulation. He's like, I don't even know what that, and, and this is everybody in the Soviet Union. It would be unfathomable for them to come here I assume most people and then have like this thrown at you it's just it's almost like you were on a different planet right yeah. um, uh, I hope she doesn't get mad at me for saying this but my mom is kind of that way my mom is not um, she still has that like itch of like not not being um like she's good with money, but it is like limited. It's like it was a new language she had to learn, basically, and she learned it well. But it's like you don't really think we learn. We have finance classes and stuff in high school, right? You know, math and finance classes and stuff. That was it's a different world to people that grew up in the Soviet Union. I just thought because we were talking about that last time, and I met with this guy, and it was like fate almost, mm -hmm. right? That I met I met with him just to review. And um, we started talking about this stuff and then with the podcast and whatnot. And he was, uh, he was telling me about how crazy the concept of investing is to somebody who grew up without a financial system. It's like money manipulation. It's like magic, right? It's like fake. They're like, this is impossible. When they first learned, they're like, this, is, this isn't real. This is impossible. How does the money grow without, how does the money, how can the pos money possibly grow without you putting more money in there that doesn't make any sense like the idea of an interest yeah. rate is bonkers oh shit i mean the, go the financial you, system you, full financial system you go you make money you spend the money yeah there's nothing left over that's their financial system. there's no bank there was no banks wow nothing there's nothing like that okay damn so and that's like that's a whole half of the not the half of the world but that's a whole big part of the world people is it important? Like, what are they doing up there? Do you have any idea what they're doing up there in Soviet or in Russia now, Ukraine? Like, or have they come? It's not like that now. This ended thirty years ago. Gotcha. So my friend, he's six, so when he first he's came now, he when he, you're saying he came when he here, first he was came. forty, right? Uh huh. And Ukraine had a period from about nineteen ninety one to two thousand that was pretty brutal. Lots of inflation. Um, and it was very difficult to set up a financial system when you have nothing in place, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how do you even do that? How do you make a currency? And how do you get people to accept a currency that wasn't there before? You're like, I'm going to give you this paper, and now you're going <laughs> to use this as a way to buy your food for your kids. Yeah. And you better take it. It's just a bonkers concept. And so there's a lot of inflation and stuff. The guy that actually set up the currency, that created the currency, my mom knows him. Decently well. Mm -hmm. He became president in 2004. 
Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's really <laughs> crazy. That's awesome. And uh, he was like a monetary genius, like a, 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 a genius at being an economist. Okay. I mean, he set the currency up. Like, he, he the hryvnia, right? He, like, created it and then was like, you, you people accept this as the new Ukrainian currency. It's still the currency. How, do you know how long it took for it to become, like... I, th- I mean, I think they instituted it and that was in its stuff. Okay. I mean, you probably had significant inflation and they always have... Uh, Ukraine always has trouble with inflation, but um, just for various reasons. But... I think it was really bad in the beginning. It was a really a, mostly a barter economy in the early 90s. Late 90s. I think it was 96 that uh, the hryvnia was 96, maybe 95. I don't know. Sometime around when I was born, it was instituted and uh, it stopped. I mean, it's still a currency today. So Nice. So I wanted to ask you this. When, what is like, how important is history uh, financial history in learning today's economy. Like, how much value do you put in learning the history of the dollar? Oh my gosh, this is like a ten podcast. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, question. Well, let's repeat the question. I just want to know how much you value learning the history of our currency. I think there's a tremendous amount of value, but it's so complicated and there's so much. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me answer it in this way. I think it's extremely important for it to be known. I think it's extremely important for it to be understood by um, people who make decisions. Okay. In terms of what affect politicians you? or like uh, bosses of the company? Yeah, that's good. I would say anybody that makes important decisions in the country in terms of what route we're going to take this way or that way, they need to understand um, they need to understand the role of money how it works and what, what, what mistakes have been made in the past in regards to um, the management of the money supply of the country. If that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, they need to understand what mistakes were made and how not to do them again. Because if you don't, then you... You know, we're like on the precipice of this right now, potentially. You have more and more people saying that this inflation is not just pandemic related. It's more than that. You have other issues. It's because... Um, well, just think about this. I mean, let me tell you a, a fact, and you, and I'll see your reaction to it. Forty percent of all the money in circulation was was created in the last year and a half. Yeah, I've heard that before. Just so, what well, I mean, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Uh huh. Prices going to jack up. So, dollar's not worth as much. Right. Was it necessary? I don't know. That part's up for debate. But what's done is done. Yeah. And we gotta live with that. And we gotta, and it, the longer people don't, or the people making decisions, so maybe the central bankers, uh, the the Federal Reserve, the central bank, if people ignore that reality, or what I think is probably a reality, I'd give it certainly over a sixty percent chance that this is not pandemic uh, inflation, or maybe part of it is, but I'd say over probably 50% of the increase in prices is possibly due to uh, money manipulation and not um, um, pandemic-related issues. Maybe it's 50-50. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Maybe it's less than 50. But certainly a a significant portion of it is from money manipulation. Uh And if you don't recognize that, if people making decisions don't recognize that and they don't, if they don't look at what has happened in the past when governments have manipulated currencies in the way that they're doing, um, I'm basically making up fancy words for money printing, but uh, it's not exactly the same as money printing. It's, it may have the same effect, but we don't know yet, but it, it probably will have a similar effect, but the extent of it is not known. But anyway... This is why I said this is a hard question. I'm trying to sum it up, but I think it's very important for people 
making decisions to understand this so they don't do it again, right? So we've got five central banks in the U.S. The Federal Reserve is the fifth central bank. Okay. Maybe fourth. I don't remember. It's fourth or fifth. There were three central banks, and they were always they always printed money, and they always caused inflation, and they were ended. Okay. Every time. The first was to raise money for the Continental Army. The second one was after the country was founded. The third one, I believe, was after that. And I think Andrew Jackson basically went to war with the central bank's president and won. Um, wow. And so he was gone. He caused a recession. I think he threw him in jail eventually because he Andrew purposely Jackson. caused a recession to make it look like Andrew Jackson's fault. Wow. So there's a great book called um, The Creature of Jekyll Island, which talks about the Fed. As you can imagine, it's not a, the most favorable look at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> it's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Okay. Great book, though. One of my favorite books I've ever read. Okay. And so the Federal Reserve is the fourth central bank that the U.S. has had. That was started in 1913. And um, their role is, their stated goal is to regulate the uh, money supply so that if you have inflation, they calm it down. And then if you have low economic growth, they stimulate it. That's their stated goal. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll put, I'll leave it at that. Gotcha. But if they don't, if they, you know, if you have inflation and they're chalking it up to things that, um, maybe are now less than 50% of the cause, then you're not going to fix the root of the problem. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really It makes sense, right? Absolutely, it does. And, uh, yeah. My whole, my whole thing, you know, I see all, all, a lot online of people complaining about the inflation, which, I mean, it sucks, but it's kind of like, it's inevitable, right? Like, is it not inevitable for, because, I saw a stat that said that every dollar today is worth like two cents compared to the dollar in 1913, something like that. Is you know you take us back a hundred years and the dollar's worth nothing compared to that dollar. Right? I mean, is it not inevitable that like why is it a shock? 1913. Is that what you said? I think it was 1913. I I could be wrong on that year. It's been a while since I've seen that stat, but um, it was around that period of time where they, you know, they compared the value of the $2. And uh, so, but the point of that is like, is it not an inevitability that this was going to happen? I don't know. I'm qualified to answer that. I really don't know. I mean, a lot of people think that the Federal Reserve is the reason that we have this sort of inflation, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to say, man. I mean, the changes in our lives and the system we live in from 1913 to now, by the way, 1913 is when the Federal Reserve was founded. That's why I was like, is that the gear you said? I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that is. But, uh, you know, the changes in our system is is unimaginable, right? If you took someone from 1913, put them in a time (laughs) machine and brought them here, they would not or 1910, they would not, uh, it would be impossible for them to fathom. Yeah. So, you know, did it, could we have had this, this massive, I don't know, massive increase in quality of life without this banking system that was created? I don't know, because most of the increase in quality of life is from technology, right? Would that have been possible without the tremendous amount of money that was loaned into existence. I don't know. I really don't know. I read that book and I was like, I get it. that Like, it, it, you know, the case is made fairly well that the Federal Reserve causes a lot of problems, but I'm not so sure that the, I don't know, benefits don't outweigh the problems of whatever we've already done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe, you know, I, I know for sure um, well, I don't, but it seems to be the case that, uh, if you are not careful with these kinds of things, they will ruin your, uh, currency for sure. Mm-hmm. Based off what? Well, yeah, history, like you said, financial history. That's how we got onto this, this answer, right? You said, is how important is financial history? And I said, as no, soon I, as you asked that question, I was like, oh, this is going to take a while. <laughs> 
But, you know, you is there like a country at, you can point to, though? Well, every country that has printed lots of money, and there's a little bit of a distinction because they literally printed money and handed it out to people. <laughs> Wild. Um, so, obviously, that's going to create problems. Our way of printing money is, um, I'm going to try to explain this as simply as possible. So, when people talk about government debt, the, what they're talking about, the government owes, you know, $29 trillion. When people say that, what they mean is um, the total number of outstanding government bonds on the market is $29 trillion. So, but you and I can own a bond, anyone can own a bond, right? You can go out and buy it on the open market. You can trade government bonds. You can go buy a government bond. That's government debt. Right, it's not, China only owns like, I think one or two trillion. So people that say China owns our debt can get out of here. That's not true. They have a small percentage of it and they do it as an investment. Our, this is, our government debt is an investment, right? So strange to me. Yeah, but that's what, mo that's what is considered the safest investment is US government debt. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're investing in, the fact we're going to be in debt is that you're investing, you're loaning the U.S. money essentially. Okay. Okay. They've never defaulted. Mm -hmm. It's true. So people assume they will never default because why would they ever default? They can just make more money. Oh, that's weird. That does not sound like a good system. Like yeah, no it shit. Does not sound like a good system. No shit. <laughs> but anyway, so that's where that's 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 essentially where money comes from. Right, we live yeah. in a system where money is loaned into existence, and then, um, so then the Federal Reserve, if you need more money in circulation and you need to juice the economy, theoretically, mm -hmm. they will um, use what are called open market operations and purchase that government debt on the open market, um, and then that will that money comes from that's conjured money, right? So they created that money to purchase that government debt. They also buy mortgage-backed securities. It has the same effect. So they use money that was created out of nothing to buy this debt, right? Mm -hmm. And then that money is, in theory, circulated throughout the financial system in the country, and then that gives everybody a little bit more money. Okay. Of course, yeah. it does sound like that would cause inflation, right? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think, I forget the exact number, but I think I know what it's close to. What do you think, how much, oh, <laughs> let me ask you a question. What do you think, okay, so the gov total U.S. government debt is $29 trillion. Okay. How much of that do you think is owned by the Federal Reserve? Actually, I don't know that exact answer, but let me ask you this. How much debt or how much money do you think the Federal Reserve, how much asset, how many, how much, what is the value of all the assets do you think that our central bank, the Federal Reserve has purchased so far? What's the value out of the 29 trillion? Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what that number is, but it's, it's a more than 50% of the number I'm about to give you. Meaning what is the total amount of money printed, printed parentheses, um, by the Federal Reserve. Really, it started, this is since 2008, right? Because it was under one trillion in at that time, and now it's about 10 trillion. Fuck. Yeah. So, a lot, most of that is government debt. So, uh -huh. this is the point. Uh -huh. um, a lot of government, uh, let's say it's seven trillion. I'm not exactly sure. We could probably look it up. I looked it up a while ago and I forgot, but... Um, let's say seven trillion of U.S. government debt is owned by the Federal Reserve. Is that crazy, right? Because they bought that money with, with, or they bought that that in that debt, right? Yeah. With money that was conjured out of nothing and then yeah. sent through the system. Yeah. And that debt that they own is never going to be paid. It expires if they want to take money out of the system. The debt expires and they just sort of get rid of it. Do you fucking my mind up right now, bro? Well, it's, it's very supposed complex to. Be. It's very complex. It's meant to be complex so that people don't look into it and understand it. That's one of the points of the creature of Jekyll Island is they're talking about. They're like they made the system is set up in a very convoluted way on purpose so that people mm. will just be like, "Fuck this, bro." 
No, I got kids. I don't need to listen to this. I don't need to worry about this bullshit. It's a lot to listen so, I gotta go to work. Which makes you very, very valuable in that you're putting in the work to learn all that. Well, I like learning about it. Uh-huh. I don't think most people do. And I don't even think most people need to, to be honest with you. I don't know how much... Sometimes I wonder if I should just not even worry about this because what's it gonna... What, what am I gonna do, you know? I mean, I only, li- I only listen... Figure it out because it's interesting to me. Yeah. It seems a little devious, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, it sounds like you know more than the average, you know, than the layman. But I think you feel, feel a need. I think you fulfill a need in people's lives, especially with something as important as, you know, financial literacy. Mm-hmm. You're that buffer mm-hmm. for understanding. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you got on this podcast because I think at least one person is going to hit you up and want to take their financial lives into their own hands, you know, Hopefully, take a little more power into it. Cause I'll tell you what, me, when I hit you up that first time, that was like my first, you know, introduction into thinking for the future. You know, other than that, it was, it was just like I was in the Soviet Union. I got paid. I started, <laughs> dude. Like really. And yeah. I, you know, it was fun, but there was nothing to show for it. Cause you know me, I've, I've started over three or four times now. I just left everything three or four times. Like everything I had bought with that money was I didn't have. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. And so it's just it's super important. I feel very empowered now that I've taken a taken it much more. Um, I've just taken it much more seriously. It's an empowering thing. You know, you, you feel safe. You yeah. know, I think a lot of people are not feeling safe. And how could you if, like, the moment your car breaks down, you have no way to fix it, and you have to go sure. to work, but you can't get to work now. That's that's you know that's a stress on people's lives that just hangs over their head. So that financial literacy is something you can provide for them, and I think that's really awesome. I think that's really good. Yeah, I do my best. <laughs> so humble, man. Cool, dude. Well, I, I you good? Yeah, yeah we should write it up. Sure, it's great. Awesome, man. Let's go to the peanut. Let's go to the peanut. I'm so down. I'm All right. All right, y'all. So you got it. This is part two. Um, I hope y'all had a good time listening in. And please give Luke a shout out. Uh, call him, 816-785-7333. Find him on Facebook. Um, get a hold of him if you want to take charge of your financial lives. It's really important, uh, I think. And I'm sure you probably agree as well. Uh, if you want to check out, I'm wearing the Be More uh, hoodie right now. It's the BMKC hoodie. You can find that on bemoreventures.org. Uh, and you can also find the BMVT on there. And you can also find every other piece of content we got going on on that website as well. So thanks for tuning in, and uh, I'll see you on the next one.